0: today's episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters. And as always, this is the show that where we talk about how everything in Montpelier shakes out for the rest of us. I want to welcome to the show this week, Emily Kornheiser, regular contributor and representative from the town of Brattleboro. Hello, Emily.
1: Hello, Olga. Good to see you.
0: And new to the show, John Woodward, who is an energy economist and policy consultant. So glad you can join us today, John.
2: It's nice to have you. (laughs) We (laughs) had.
0: Well, what I'm excited about talking about today is, as folks may know, this summer, Emily, and probably into the fall knowing us, we're going to spend some time looking at Vermont from a bigger perspective. And so today, we're going to be touching into renewable energy and how that all fits with issues around the power grid. I'm intrigued, John, going forward for this conversation, because you know, we always talk about how things are connected, especially when we talk about things like climate change. And you can't get much more of a web than the power grid. It's connecting towns, it's connecting regions. And if you, as I understand it, if you pull on one piece of it, other pieces happen. And so when you fit renewable energy into the conversation, you start talking about policies and economics and governance and all these other things outside, just what powers your light bulb when you turn on your light in the morning. Let's give folks a lay of the land right now. How are the grid and renewables fitting together or not right now?
2: Or yes, it is a very, uh, very much a sticky web too. Um, some people call the grid the world's biggest machine, um, which I think is pretty accurate um, since it literally, you can connect, you know, the plugs in our house to the plugs in someone's house in California, if you want to trace the lines, well, almost, but, Another story. So um, right now, say in Vermont, right, we have very strong, like a bunch of other states, um, very strong renewable energy, renewable electricity and renewable energy targets. um, You know, on the books and statute, we're supposed to be aiming for 90 percent renewable energy by 2050 and a big chunk of that um will be uh done through electricity uh cleaning up and greening up the electricity supply which is already starting out pretty uh pretty green to begin with um in vermont largely thanks to um lots of uh hydropower uh long-standing relationship with our Quebecois neighbors up north, Hydro Quebec specifically, lots of big hydropower dams have been giving us some um, firm, firm renewable power for a long time. But um, you know, we, in addition to that, um, so those are sort of traditional, you know, green uh, renewable energy. But what what grabs most of the attention, of course, is is the the wind that's come on. Um, the last 10, 20 years, Mm -hmm. um, and of course, all the solar um, that's being deployed largely, um, not exclusively, but largely through through net metering policies. Mm -hmm. This is the, you know, the classic rooftop solar stuff that um, gets a lot of attention in the press, but we also have larger, what they call utility scale solar plants um, that are less visible and and less less the subject of sort of public policy debates because it's utilities um, contracting with developers to 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 build bigger plants that become part of our overall power supply portfolio Mm -hmm. but so it's important to distinguish between what they call distributed renewable energy that's that's um, renewable energy plants that are actually patched into the distribution grid and the more traditional renewable sources that are patched into the transmission system or the bulk power system generate there and basically flow their power downstream to consumers. So distributed is, a, is, is a still a new paradigm, distributed generation, that um, we'll be sort of adapting to and coping with for a long time. Because it, the implications are that we now are sending, if we have enough of it, we'll be sending power up onto um, the distribution grid. It will flow to where where it is in demand in any given, you know, any given second because of the speed that electricity moves to. But that, you know, that could, that has lots of implications for for how basically utilities need to operate in order to, avoid, you know, reliability problems on the grid, but also just in general to um, plan for that uh, some level of penetration of of, of renewable generation that could flow now now where we're flowing to have two-way power flows where the grid was not at all um, designed with that in mind. This is in a lot of ways. can I clarify or Please, clarify So we question. should probably just preface all of this and say you can get pretty technical pretty fast and acronyms can go undefined. I'm just used to talking that way, so uh, I'll, I'll try my best, but hold me accountable.
0: Before you jump um, so, in, Emily, yeah. sorry, I just want to check with, you mentioned two-way power flows. Does that mean we would have energy that was flowing, trying to flow in and out of the system at the same time?
2: An example, um, right now, Wyndham County, we're all in. Um, there's a, sub, a distribution utility-owned substation um, called the North Brattleboro, North Brattleboro substation. You might have seen the construction work they did on it last summer. Mm-hmm. Um, there will be, in on really sunny days, there's enough solar in the surrounding area. Um, there will be um, power flowing from those solar panels up into the substation and onto the bigger wires that are normally fed to that where power is normally fed to that substation is now exporting from that substation onto the larger distribution system so Mm -hmm. from there it goes just by the laws of physics it will go to where you know the the nearest load center is wherever that is Mm -hmm. Um, so it can also go even further onto the transmission system, which um, is run and owned by uh, Velco, Vermont Electric Power Company, um, and is part of a larger regional bulk power system um, that has this sort of different, different set of governance uh, structures and, and, and rules um, is subject to regulation from the federal, Government, Federal Energy Regulatory Committee, and, and other entities, but it's considered the wholesale system. Um, mm-hmm. So we we are inching towards a place where these two way power flows are actually um, blurring some of the jurisdictional lines that we're, uh. we're used to operating with, um, because the distribution system is pretty much predominantly the domain of state state regulators. Um, I used to work for the public service department and, um, you know, that, that was, that is the system that they are charged with uh, overseeing and, and the, the companies and um, the companies and other players that that operate or, or patch onto that system are all the purview of, 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 the, of the state. But now that that roster includes like lots of net metering customers, lots of other you know solar developers, um, battery um, battery owners and operators. Now, um, what we call aggregators—people uh, who come in and, and uh, third parties who come in and, and collect a bunch of customer loads, sort of package them into a quote-unquote dispatchable uh resource that gotcha. where you can sort of shut demand on and off at, at at critical times. Anyways, this whole roster of players now, you know,
0: they're all starting growing. to overlap and bump yeah. into each other. Okay. Yes.
1: And yeah, then it becomes you. the purview of regional jurisdiction. Um, but I before we get to that, I just want to say going back um to the hydropower Quebec Issue. Just if listeners want to learn more about Hydropower Quebec, because it is green and there's some really significant cultural and environmental Mm -hmm. destruction that has happened as a result of those dams. And if folks want to learn more about that, NHPR did an incredible little mini series on Hydropower Quebec and the history of some of the conflicts there and how they related to really sort of the history of that region of Canada battles between the French and the English and the indigenous folks. It's a really fascinating series. Um, And so want folks, if they want to learn more about that, I highly recommend that other
2: podcast. Do you remember what it was called, John? Outside In. It was a very good series. It might've been their first sort of premiere. And then they just kept going after that, like all podcasts too. (laughs) (laughs) And then
1: the other thing that I just sort of wanted to, clarify for myself is what I heard you say is that sort of historically you have folks who produce the energy companies that produce the energy and sort of feed it to the companies that purchase the energy who then sell it to customers and what you're saying is that on some level the distributed energy is a reversal of that existing pattern and that brings up governance issues. Mm. Is that too much of a summary of a complicated
2: issue? it's pretty close it might be good enough you know i think the 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 sort of boiled down way to say it is that we're having to navigate our way through what what was a central station paradigm that is build big generating stations site them wherever unless they're you know a big hydropower plant or, or um you know you can more or less they're using fuel you know commodity fuel fossil fuel, you can more or less site them wherever, but they patch into the transmission system. So very big poles and wires that are part of a system that's designed to um, distribute that central station power to distribution systems like the ones that we think of when we see telephone poles, which are originally power poles. But so moving from that paradigm to one where now We have distributed plants that are also putting power onto the system that is being consumed locally. The details around how it's paid for. I mean, you raised that element, which is obviously, you know, a big part of the Uh, let's not do that part yet. (laughs) Yeah, okay. (laughs) Okay.
1: And so Um, and then so from there, and then that's sort of the flows, historic flows, new flows, and then there's the governance, which historically has well not? We don't want to go too far back in history because, well, we will, but that's not what I'm asking about right now. So right now, governance, especially in Vermont, um, you said that it was regulated at the state level for distribution within the state sort of to customers, and that's a patchwork in Vermont of private sector corporations um, and then co-ops, and then from there, it's governed regionally by the... ISO, which is federally regulated. Can you
2: get a little mm-hmm. bit more into that? Yes, so at the regional level, so what I was calling the wholesale system, um, it is overseen um, by the Federal Energy Regulatory Committee um, at a at an abstract level. I mean, and like historically, you know, that is what the, the FERC, we call it, um, was, instituted to do, Um, interestingly, because, you know, we're talking about interstate trade, when we talk about power flowing across state borders. Um, And they, in the late, when was it 2000, early 2000s, um, late 90s, early 2000s, instituted a requirement for regional transmission organizations to be developed, which, is another way to say basically ISO Independent System Operator, which you're talking about. So these entities were given the responsibility that the nonprofits they're given responsibility of um, doing several things. Um, the main one is basically, well, they're overlapping, so I shouldn't say main one, but they're they're planning the trans build out of the transmission grid. So they are. Organizing all the stakeholders that need to be part of a discussion about how many more of these big poles and wires we need to build in order to reliably serve what we expect to be future load, but they also organize um, and administer a wholesale market. That's literally a giant auction that you know clears every five minutes, and and all the generators um, that are those central station type generators that I mentioned before. They will make bids, um, dollar value bids um, into, into the auction and the ISO will take those bids and arrange them from lowest to highest and figure out what's called the um, quote unquote merit order and come up with a dispatch schedule so that their daily operations, they can basically you know, run the grid, call on these plants in real time when needed based on their, their financial willingness to generate power at, um, you know, right. at the price points they offered. Um, it's, it's, so. And then,
1: so, and the ISO that we operate under in Vermont is ISO New England. How, what are the scale of other ISOs around the country? So. Are they usually like, Five states or whatever we are.
2: Yeah, we are five states. I mean, it is, before talking, well, okay, we'll go through them and then come back to Vermont. So ISO New England is, how does it compare? I don't know. It's it's, it's not one of the bigger ones, actually. New York has its own ISO. So it is its own transmission planning area. Um, there's PJM, which originally stood for Pennsylvania New Jersey and Maryland but has since expanded to cover most of the mid-Atlantic and a good chunk of the eastern part of the midwest including like areas of Ohio um there's a the California ISO its own entity and
1: and Texas famously has its own
2: right? yeah Texas Texas has its own uh Aircott people know, probably know that that acronym by now, Electrical Liability Council of Texas. It's in fact its own to add another term don't here. Talk. It's its own interconnection area. Okay. <laughs> uh, but there's a lot, there's so there's a lot of areas of, of the country, uh, probably close to the majority. Don't put me on this. So let's say around half or more of the actual territory of of USA that is not. Part of a um, organized market, the way I explained it. So, um, they have other ways of dealing with um, sort of daily dispatching and, and even other ways of planning the transmission system. Similar, but not not the same. In Vermont, it, it just real quick is worth mentioning that the we are the only state within iso new england that maintains what is called a vertically integrated industry structure which long story short means our utilities are still allowed to own generation um, that in the late 90s around the same time that the that the ferc was was um, Pushing these orders to, let's say, go forth and 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 basically administer wholesale markets. A lot of states were also um, doing what's called restructuring or or deregulation, depending on you know how you think about it. You know, Long, you know, which basically meant that utilities had to mostly divest themselves of the generation that they owned previously. So all those all those plants, those big central plants that they owned. Um, they were no longer allowed to own under the the hope and dream that you could introduce competition um, within the generation segment of the industry, so that now you know we can have all these merchant plants um, competing in a in a market you know on price, making literally bids into an administered auction, and that would uh, that would get us the lowest you know the lowest possible wholesale price of power that would then flow down to the distribution companies, which are now, except for in Vermont, wires only companies. They just own the wires and administ- make sure that, you know, the, the small poles and poles and wires at the distribution level are maintained and their customers are happy, but they don't run, they don't run power plants anymore. Not so in Vermont. We still have a fair amount. In fact, Emily and I are going to uh, the Waterbury state park and, uh, on Monday, where the GMP still owns a hydro dam, um, hydropower plant that uh, has been ponded up into a reservoir. So it's from the 1930s, I think. Oh, cool!
1: Two things: one, we did not reveal that John yes. is my partner here on the show yet. Um, in interest of full disclosure, in interest of full disclosure, we were going to record in the same room and then decided that. Not to. And so we are in two different rooms of the same house. And I'm really excited to have John on the show today yeah. and talk about electricity. No, 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 up? It, was no it was good. It no, was good. I meant good. to do it at the beginning. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> that's, we that's do the it
0: proper a... thing to do. <laughs> yes.
1: As a family, we do occasionally vacation near historic electrical infrastructure. Cause that's how cool we are. Um, and then one thing that's really interesting to me about the Vermont grid in relationship to all of this other stuff, and part of why I wanted to talk about all this today um, is that given that so much of our electricity governance and purchasing happens in the context of the ISO New England, not in the context of just Vermont, it's helpful for me to remember what an incredibly small scale Vermont's electricity needs and market is in relationship to ISO New England. And while we have a different regulatory structure that I think is important to talk about, I also, um, I think often we talk about the solutions for climate change or the future of Vermont in this context of let's electrify everything and then it will be green. Um, But it's only green if the grid is green Mm -hmm. and us greening our Vermont grid is often small potatoes, tiny beans, whatever you want to call it in relationship to the scale of the ISO grid that we have. So I'm curious to hear about sort of what scale we are in relationship to the ISO grid and how much power Vermont has in relationship to these other states that are purchasing and producing so much more than we are.
2: Yeah, we're a drop in the bucket. Roughly 4% of the electrical energy consumed, you know, more or less same number of customers um, in the region. Um, 4% of
1: the New England England. grid is
2: consumed in Vermont. Uh, Yeah, 4% of all electrical load consumed in New England is is consumed by Vermonters. Um, Mm -hmm. So, however, you know, there are sort of, I, I will get to the question of like, whether or not that means our power portfolio is actually green or not. Um, I think you can still, just as a preview, safely say it is, at least on a contractual basis. Um, but the way the ISO New England governance structure is set up allows for fairly equal participation Um of this each of the six New England states, um, in you know, in the various you know, transmission planning discussions and processes, as well as like policy conversations, which the latter of are happening, having to happen more and more because of all the all the problems posed by you know the fact that the wholesale market was not designed for renewable generators that don't have fuel costs. Mm -hmm. Um, Interesting thing. We rabbit hole, we could go down another time. Um, But that's not like, I think you're getting at more the sort of purchasing power that maybe Vermont had, you know, the the influence that might be wielded by, you know, the the dollars that utilities um, and customers spend on, on power thereby like, you know, to the extent that those are sort of demand signals for generators, and like, do they move the needle? Um, and so, you know, it'd be one thing if we were just like getting all of our power, you know, off the wholesale market, and like just, you know, whatever the mark, you know, whatever power cleared through the market, that's what we're getting, and you know, it'd be predominantly natural gas. That's that's been. The story um, for the past 10 years, the expansion of natural gas. Um, but we actually have a lot of, you know, we do, like I said, we still own some of our own generations, so that's self supply. It's not actually a lot. And, um, and that really hasn't been added to, except for, um, you know, the wind, um, some of the wind, you know, the wind plants in the Northeast kingdom and and around there um, much Ballyhood wind. Um, So it's and solar, of course, but other than that, there are a lot of actual bilateral, um, you know, one party to one party contracts that the utilities have signed with other generators that, that entitle them to um, power from specific generation sources. So these are ways to not, basically not have to um be reliant on market power spot spot purchases they're called on the market um they're they're locked in contracts some of them are pretty long term to the extent that like i think for the next 10 you know 10 to 15 years it's been a while you know i don't look at this stuff anymore i'm not a regulator anymore but um we have a a pretty much a a really pretty green portfolio of contract path power. Um, So does
1: that that mean that our power company say um, either the central Vermont power co-op or green mountain power have relationships to buy directly from electricity producers and so they're not going through that auction process that you described?
2: Yeah, you could think of it that way. All, um, so every auction has to have two sides, buyer and seller. Um, everything that um, the utilities have to serve as load has to actually be cleared at the, has to be paid for, settled, sorry, paid for at the, um, at the clearing price of the auction. Um, but, they the various prices that are being paid in these contracts are whatever you know whatever they are negotiated with the other party so if it's a big you know nuke plant um you know that's going to give 24 7 firm power that's going to have one price if it's a you know if it's a wind plant new hampshire um that's probably you know that's that's just going to be able to guarantee a little bit—not base load power, not all the time. It's going to be a different price. So you know, there's entire divisions of the utilities that their job is to make sure that they have, you know, what they consider a, a, a you know, a good portfolio, a good hedged portfolio, um, and and has to pass muster with the regulators as least least costs. So in terms of the power they're buying from suppliers, that's going to be. Um, the sum product of of all those different contracts, plus whatever they're exposed to, whatever they're exposed to -to day-to-day, minute-to-minute to to fill the gap that they don't have locked in on the market. Um,
1: So one thing I want to talk about after the break Mm -hmm. um, is how those power purchases influence the cost to consumers and particularly... um, Something that we've talked about how solar is essential, how essentially solar is subsidized by the consumer, and what that looks like um, from an equity perspective. But I don't, um, Olga. Do you have other? I think
0: yeah. We we do have to go to break to hear from some of our underwriters. But what I'm sitting with with is that four percent of consumption, um, and how we have these big goals for climate change. Um, and just exactly how much, not that we shouldn't go forward with them, but how much power does Vermont have to, to make a dent in climate change, um, is something I'm just really sitting with right now too. So we're going to go to break. We're going to hear from some of our underwriters here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Back to the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. You can also find us at our website, which is the Montpelier Happy Hour at Captivate.fm, Emily's YouTube channel, as well as BCTV and Apple Podcasts. Hey, Emily, what do we have to remind listeners of?
1: Well, Olga, the views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the host and the guests, and none of the platforms, broadcast stations, websites, or employers of any of the hosts and the guests, just the hosts and the guests' views and opinions. It is just a
0: little capsule of time, a little moment of conversation
1: that Mm -hmm. exists on the (laughs) <laughs> and then um, is saved forever in posterity. Yeah. The yes.
0: <laughs> so you can dip back into it whenever you want. We save moments. Right before the um, the break, we started talking about solar a little bit, Emily, and you brought up some questions about costs and equity and and how that system around solar works. Would you dive back into that, please?
1: Yeah, I want a green future. I do not want to die in a fiery explosion. I don't want drought and flood and all of the things that are clearly on the horizon with climate change. I want to create a good future for my child. All of those things, and I remain can remain and continue to be concerned about so many of our solutions. Um, our green solutions are often market based, mm-hmm. and those market based solutions. I think very often benefit those who can afford them, financially even. Mm -hmm. They're incentives that are built in that only folks who can afford them can afford. While the impacts of climate change are going to hit poor folks and folks of color, marginalized folks of any kind first. Mm -hmm. And we talked two weeks, some point recently with Abby Kors, um, who is on the Climate Council And she also expressed some of these same concerns about what a just transition looks like. And so I want to sort of step back into how we set electricity prices and sort of what progressive electricity prices looks like and how solar and net metering fits into all of that. Because if we're going to do this well, I think we really need to be mindful and understand how the levers impact each other. And I think it's, well, as people could tell from the beginning of this segment, it's really complicated. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's worth understanding the complication so that we can find solutions that actually get us where we want to go instead of
2: somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of ways in which all of the developments that are being sort of heralded is like Awesome tech innovations at the grid edge and like all these companies that are spinning out and offering customer-facing um, services, energy services, whether or not you know the dashboard for usage or smart appliances that can communicate with the cloud and turn off and on 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 demand and all this stuff, plus you know, storage, residential scale storage in your basement and rooftop, all that stuff like. They really ch- challenge sort of the core the core of the social compact that has been sort of established between the state and the utility companies, um, which is a guarantee, you know, a monopoly in exchange for a guarantee of universal, reliable service at, you know, quote-unquote just and reasonable costs. Um, I think... You know, peering into the controversies around net metering policies really provides a case in point. It's not the only one, of course, but it is definitely one that people argue about a lot um, and, and, and one where sort of, you know, the developers of solar projects that qualify for net metering treatment really have been Lining up against kind of the ratepayer advocates, um, whether or not can, it's the regular- can you
1: can you back up and explain to us what net metering is, Yeah. and then try to describe what the experience of net metering is to the average customer who's not a net metering customer.
2: Right. So net metering is actually kind of an accidental policy that has turned <laughs> turned into. Um, its own its own universe, really. So, <laughs> the uh, the basic premise is that you can, you know, throw some solar panels up uh, onto your onto your roof or onto your yard, and when those um, solar panels produced power, they will cause your utility meter that they read for billing purposes. The utility does to run backwards. And basically, basically you can zero out your bill if, if you have enough power. If anyone's watch, watching this and is savvy to the, the particulars of how this is actually done, the technical particulars in Vermont today, they will tell me, of course, it's generally, we have production meters, two different meters, one for the plant, one for the house and blah, blah, blah. It doesn't, doesn't matter. The, the, the upshot is that you can basically get rid of your bill. So, you basically you partner with a developer the way it tends to work um, of which there are several in Vermont, but it is an increasingly consolidated field, you know, such as the, such are the patterns of capitalism. And so you do, you partner with a, a developer to, you know, pay them something to get the things on your, on your roof or in your yard. And that basically replaces your bill and it's, you know, if if the price points are are low enough for solar, then you'll actually be paying less right out of the gate. Or if they like offer you a lease um, or a loan payment instead of you know paying all up front, which is a pretty big way that, that developers have sort of increased their 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 sales volumes and their and their customer their customer basis for for these projects. You have to make it so that they don't have to actually front all the cash, of course, but you can probably already detect that there's, you know, obvious like market segmentation that, that anyone would, anyone who's a developer in this business line would, would, would think, you know, would want to, uh, develop their business model around, um, that being, you know, people who can afford it versus people who don't, you know, go knocking on people's doors who don't afford it, uh, can't afford it.
0: I just, John, I just for local listeners want to give them some context, I believe the town of Brattleboro has a net metering contract, um, as do some of the schools have some net metering contact tr- contracts with larger solar fields mm-hmm. in, in the area. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's another one up in Putney um, as well That's a was developed for net metering. So it is something we have locally.
1: I mean, anyone like our next door neighbor has a solar panel in his yard and that's a net metering contract. And like any most people, if you drive past their house and they have solar panels, newer solar panels, they have a net metering contract. When I think when I first met a solar panel, Um, which is I think like the first year I moved to Vermont and I like went out to visit someone who was living, you know, off the grid with a solar panel. That's not a net metering contract. They have like a closed loop, but very few people do that anymore. Most people are adding it to their existing operation. And that's, so individuals have net metering contracts too. And any sort of solar panel you drive past is usually that.
2: Yeah, it's a huge program in Vermont. In fact, um, per capita, you know, we're up there very close to the top, if not the top in terms of, um, the installed solar capacity distribute, you know, small scale distributed solar capacity, um, per capita, like up there with Hawaii, um, and California. Um, so as, as, you know, normalized to our population and our load, it's, it's an, it's a lot. And and net metering is a big chunk of that. You say, they're not, these are not off-grid systems. They're grid connected systems. Um, And sort of to to understand um, how this has impacted kind of the way that different socioeconomic, you know, classes pick up the tab for different, you know, Costs of the system, you, you have to you have to understand how we did that when before you know how we do rate design and how we did that cost recovery before net metering was really even a twinkle in anyone's eye, um, and and the simple way to understand that is that I think we have we have a two part generally the practice is and this is not unique to Vermont this is pretty standard this, for residential customers especially. Um, We have a two part tariff. So why, why utility rates that, you know, are charged to the consumer are called tariffs. I don't know, but we call them tariffs, a two part tariff system, um, which is one, you know, small, relatively small fixed charge, you know, a a set amount on your bill that will hit you every, every month. Um, Generally, it's supposed to capture like the cost of, of of your installing your meter and your service drop and some other you know some other pretty marginal costs. And there's a whole bunch of other fixed costs of the distribution system. So fixed costs, they just they have to be incurred, you know, you have to build poles and wires and substations, and that cost has to be recovered. That, you know. There's a whole bunch of other ones that just aren't aren't in that fixed cost that that customer charge that fixed. The other part of the tariff is what we all think of when we think of the rate. It's the, it's the charge per kilowatt hour, but all of those other costs for the other fixed costs for um, poles, wires, transformers, etc., um, are also being recovered through that per kilowatt hour charge. A good chunk of them, so. What that means is when you reduce your usage, um, you're reducing the amount of kilowatt hours you consume, whether or not that's through a you know, better efficiency, turning off your lights more often, or through a net meter project in your backyard that's you know, reducing your apparent, your apparent build usage. You're actually now leaving a whole bunch of fixed costs stranded and at least that you would have otherwise helped to cover, helped the utility to cover, now they have to be recovered somewhere else. And that tends to show up in, if you don't change the structure of the tariff, it tends to show up in rate increases for the general residential rate class or general customers um, in the future. So So, there's a cost shift happening. So
1: if we have less people who, because they have solar panels or because they're just reducing their power usage, um, we have sort of a less number of total net metered hours that the cost can the fixed cost can be distributed across. And so the cost per kilowatt hour needs to go up because we have a smaller pool of people who are paying those costs now.
2: Right. And there's been some efforts. Um, in other states, but also in Vermont, to like, you know, the net metering rules for how much they get compensated change now by statute every two years. The, the Public Utility Commission has to revisit them and, and, and um, basically tweak them, generally tweak them lower because of this issue is the expectation anyways. But one of those changes was also to make sure that there's a a charge for net metering customers that they cannot, they cannot bypass. That's supposed to, you know, represent some chunk of that fixed cost that they're otherwise avoiding paying.
1: And from a policy perspective, this, as a legislator, this becomes incredibly difficult because we have very different things that we want to incentivize. Right? Like we want to incentivize the creation of more renewable energy, and we want from a very sort of simplistic outside perspective we want it to look like we're incentivizing the creation of more solar like that should be a very transparent incentive for folks and we don't want the entire burden and we want people to reduce their electricity usage right like we want people to use efficiency we have an entire agency that is devoted towards this efficiency vermont that we pay for dearly and then at the same time we don't want to create a system where the burdens of all of that um, or the burdens of the grid are sitting with fewer and fewer people who can are less and less likely to afford it. Mm -hmm. And so figuring out how to navigate those three dynamics and sort of the competitions between them is Mm -hmm. it's really confusing.
0: And I'm curious, Emily, Given that grid is something and and the policies that govern the grid extend beyond Vermont, how much power does the legislature have in some respects to to enact new policies or or address some of these these cross purposes?
1: Well, we I think in some ways take more power than we have, and sometimes um, and I think. Well, I think John and I would probably disagree about that in some ways. Um, And sometimes I get a little bit of a, you know, you in that legislature. Oh, dear. (laughs) So I guess I'd be more curious to hear how John would answer that question.
2: Well, you know, the statutes that pertain to, you know, energy, regulated energy industries in Vermont, like in other states, do tend to leave a lot of the implementation details to rulemaking by the public utility commission. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's, that's a problem. I don't know. People have different opinions on how prescriptive obviously legislation should, you know, the language of legislation should be, but.
1: And we've, so we've um, had the healthcare advocate on um, to talk about the Green Mountain Care Board. That was really hard for me to come up with for a second. And what sort of rulemaking and rate-making process looks like there and where opportunities for leverage are in that conversation. And so I'd be curious to hear from you as as that rulemaking happens with the Utility Commission, where opportunities, who is at that table? How accessible is that process? Who's actually paying any attention to what they're doing? I'll transparently say I pay no attention to what they're doing. And so be like if if you could share that with us a little bit, that would be great.
2: Yeah. Um well do we want to go back to to solar at all? Um for a second I felt like I there was a loose end there, but should I try to close that before sure, we're go to do this? No. Oh
1: no. Whatever you want. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> yes, go for it.
2: Just <laughs> <I was> kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> So I think if you go back to that idea that like the core of the social compacts with the utilities and the state is a guarantee of universal, affordable, um, electrical service. And you then sort of add to, to the reality that or the possibility that, you know, Part of that service could well be, you know, the ability to to generate your own power or to use locally generated power from your neighbor. Or if that if that's somehow like you know makes its way into the concept of 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 what it means to provide local you know distribution electrical service, distribution system level, then that really shifts like how you would go about things like, you know, how you would, how you would make policies that incentivize people to put, you know, put up more solar panels um, Mm -hmm. from one that is currently, you know, fairly adversarial between developers and utilities. They get along fine, but it's, you know, they're having to be react. Utilities are having to be reactive. They didn't, you know they didn't plan for this this reality and and also possibly away from you know a you know an approach that essentially is relying on profit motive of developers in order to deploy the actual hardware and generating capacity all of all of which depends on a way of allocating costs that, um, you know, leads to, you know, more and more of that fixed, fixed cost part of, part of the, um, part of the equation being picked up by people who are at least likely to be able to afford Mm. solar plants. So like, this is, this would be like for, you know, for any insiders in the regulatory scene, this would should be a fairly radical uh, reconception of of what it means to guarantee, you know, universal service, because these are, you know, it is so you know, rooftop solar is not considered essential to electrical service because as I talked about, you know, we've defined electrical service from a central state paradigm, central power station paradigm. But If you did, just spitballing, really, like you know, it'd be much easier to sort of um, uh, think about utility programs that, you know, take the take take on a lot of the development um, tasks, or, or, or you know, utility programs that guarantee you know customers can. Can can install their own solar. That that basically provide you know um, maybe on bill financing to do that, or you know in some way or another use the utility's borrowing power for the capital costs. But so, essentially, that anyone could come to the utility as a clearinghouse. The utility would have the partnerships with developers in order to make these things happen. And you know the utility could plan around it instead so of be reactive to it. Any customer, regardless of income, could, you know, um, could approach the utility, it, you know, just, you know, concepts like that, like it, there are sort of ways around the uh, sort of like the paradigm of, of like using, pr- you know, sort of crude, crude price incentives like net metering rates to to sort of spurn, you know, spurn developers to 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 pick all of the uh, you know, pick all of the lowest hanging fruit, which usually means richest folks, and 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 start from there, and and you know, whatever shifts costs, whatever costs are shifted onto other folks in the process, you know, cost of progress, whatever. Different so, ways that. what
1: I hear you saying, very simply, is that we have these very clear guarantees that the Public Utility Commission makes all of its decisions around. And then we have policy goals that are not necessarily aligned with those guarantees. And what it makes me think of, and that maybe if we sort of built out that guarantee a little more broadly, it would be easier to align those goals. But what and what it reminds me of is there's so many places in state government where we've decided that we should have closed financial loops, um, fee structures that need to pay for that department exclusively. And because of that, we wind up underfunding whatever that regulatory body is or underfunding that system because we create these wild sort of reverse incentives in there Um, Mm -hmm. and that those closed loops really don't leave space for the kind of policy progress that we often wanna make. Mm yeah
2: interesting. that's a, that's there's actually um so this issue of like cost shifts has has really risen much more to to the public eye or at least the public policy eye in california than than here although we talk about it a good deal um and it's a part of proceedings and all that um and there has been a really interesting and uh, interesting proposal that's come from, from a pretty prominent um, like energy economist out there, um, UC Berkeley. to basically, it sounds it sounds so basic, but you would not believe how radical a notion it is. It's just to say, hey, why don't we raise some of these fixed costs that, that, are, that are sort of being poorly recovered and, and, and falling pretty heavy on lower income folks from the progressive income tax? why don't we not raise all of the funds that we need to run the distribution system through rates that, that are sort of poorly designed. I mean, like, I don't know where that is as a proposal, but it's, it's such a sacred cow to like, even say that, like from my time in government, like the idea that you could, you know, dip into the general fund for the distribution system. I mean, there's, there's, Reasonable trepidation around that. You know, you don't, you know, it could be, especially if we're talking about private utilities, investor owned utilities, mm-hmm. and like, mm-hmm. you know, we're talking about giving them a profit out of the general fund and um, possibly talking about that, you know, the potential for that, you know, and the political stickiness issues. But, um, but it's the kind of creative thinking that, like, seems often off limits.
0: Thank you, John. I just looked at the time. I was so engrossed in the conversation that we have just a couple minutes left. Um, and so just quickly touching base, we covered a lot of ground. Emily, John, any last thoughts you want to, any threads you want to just kind of tie a bow on before we, we end today's show? Yeah. I just
1: want to tie a bow really quick on the idea that I think Often being on the committee on ways and means, I um, struggle to translate how tax and financing policy in government um, is directly linked to policy goals. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a really clear example for listeners about how much the way we structure the financing of government um, can often be at odds with our policy goals or very closely aligned with our policy goals and how being mindful of that on a really macro level is essential for us to provide good services to Vermonters.
0: Thank you. How about you,
2: John? Yeah. I wish it was possible to tie neat bows around all this stuff, but the the (laughs) grid is, I mean, there are so many open (laughs) questions about how the, you know, how the grid at all levels distribution, that's the retail level, transmission wholesale level that we've talked about both in turn, all of those levels are going to be run and like, what what it really means to have a hundred percent renewable grid, and like what that means for how um, utilities need to operate, what that means for consumers, whether or not they're going to be participants in the literal operations of the grid, you know, minute to minute, if they have solar panels or batteries or you know responsive loads in their home, how all that shakes out is. Um, I mean, we can go a long way greening up our power supply um, with, you know, the way we have been in the past and like, you know, the other states in the region and then the country doing doing similarly before having to figure all that out. But at some point, the lo- locus of control of grid operations is really changing um, mm-hmm. it's got, and it's going to have to be formally reflected in. And new laws and new rules and a new govern, you know, new new codes of conduct and 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 governance structures. If we're, you know, when 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 that happens, we don't know. But like being ready for that conversation um, is, you know, and, and really bringing a strong sort of um, equity lens to it and public good lens to it will be really important because. You know, there are very large, you know, forces of, of, of capital accumulation at play. Um, and, you know, if we don't have a strong and updated sense of what the public interest means mm-hmm. as all this happens, you know, it, 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 the path of least resistance might be to, you know, give away the farms to, to, to Google, to control all the, you know, home automated devices or something, you know, like it. This are all. Is Way all to close with the apocalypse. There John. you go. Well, isn't that aren't we due? I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> well, I want to thank you, John Woodward, um, energy economist and policy consultant, for being on the show today. And we always like to end with a toast. So I want to toast to keeping the public interest front and foremost in our minds when we are moving forward with system changes. So nice you're here. One. Here is that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Thank you for joining us today, everybody. Uh, we will be back next week with another show. In the meantime, as I mentioned, you can find us at our website, at our Facebook page, at Emily's YouTube channel, and BCTV WVEW one hundred seven point seven LP Brattleboro. And did I miss anyone, Emily?
1: I don't know. It's getting sillier and sillier. <laughs> <The list. laughs> Well, in the
0: meantime, everyone, have a great weekend. Take care.